Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you're going to commit to being in a band, you have to be prepared to deal with the bad as well as the good. The good stuff can include fame, money, perks, and the ability to make a living by playing music. It's enviable stuff. But then there's the bad side of things. Problems with your record label, lineup changes, dealing with the fickle tastes of the public, writer's block, internal struggles, management hassles, and I guess we can add pandemic lockdowns too. I could go on, but I think you get the point. These are things that can be deadly for any group, at any level, at any time. But none of these issues are necessarily fatal. And this is where I direct you to Exhibit A, Canada's 5440. This band has been a going concern since 1980. And while there have been a couple of lineup changes over the years, three by my count, the core of the group is still there. Here's singer Neil Osborne and guitarist Brad Merritt. Well, there's just two things that we say, or one one thing I say, one thing Brad says. So I'll do my one, which is we started out, like I said, we were on a mission. We were going to change the world. We were like revolutionaries, you know, like the Clash and Sandinista and all that. So I was like, I'm still doing this when I'm 30. I'm going to shoot myself. So then, you know, hits started to come along, success. I'm still doing this when I'm 40. Shoot me. <laughs> and then it's like, if I'm still doing this when I'm 50, f- hey, man, this is like amazing. <laughs> and now I'm 60 and it's like, oh, my God, I can't believe I get to do this. And then Brad has a, we have a, a final, uh, our 20 year out. You can go. Oh, that one. Yeah. yeah. So, it, it, you know, we do these radio interviews and, you know, uh, they're the person uh, who's doing the interview with me is like, uh, how much longer are you going to do this? And it's kind of, I kind of took umbrage at that. Uh, so I actually thought about it for a minute and I went, well, when the Rolling Stones quit, that's our 20 year warning. Because we started 20 years after they started. Just keep creating, keep writing. You know, if you love it, do it. And then maybe something will happen. Maybe it won't, but at least you'll be doing what you love. And, you know, everything should take care of itself. This is the story of 5440 in their own words, part two. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Fifty Four Forty and Love You All from their 1996 album Trusted by Millions, the group's third consecutive platinum record. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the second half of a sit-down with Fifty Four Forty. Neil Osborne, Brad Merritt, Matt Johnson, and David Genn. I let them take care of the storytelling this time. We ended part one in about 1995 with the band releasing their sixth record, Smiling Buddha Cabaret. But we have to backtrack a little bit before we go forward. They had to switch labels. They were dropped by Warner, but picked up by Sony Music Canada. So let's start there. So what does one do when they lose their big American record deal and are unsure of their future? How did you guys even hold it together? Yeah, another another existential moment. <laughs> another moment where you could pack it in or decide you're going to go on. So I like, you know, what Neil was talking about with uh, Fight for Love. It's like, you know, at that point, we wanted to sort of retrench and, and you know, uh, Success is not guaranteed by taking the record company's path, right? So, so you don't know the future's unwritten. So why not 
succeed or fail on your own terms rather than somebody else's terms. And so that was our attitude from that point on. We we felt a little, uh, not embittered, I, I didn't, but it was a learning experience doing that show me record, right? Because we sort of went with uh, the path of least resistance. You guys know, the producer, uh, the people at the record company, and it, it, no, we didn't like it. That's the only record that we made that I can't even listen to anymore. I can literally cannot listen to that record. So, uh, so I, I said, well, we're just going to stick together as a band and, uh, and not, uh, listen to these people anymore. I mean, we'll listen, but we're going to do our own thing. And so, so now we're into the transition. We got a kind of like uh, a couple of years where we're <clears throat> going to, uh, figure some things out and try to get another deal because we don't want to make independent records and there's deals out there. And, uh, you know, we're courting record companies that are courting us and we're spending lots of time writing material. We must've had 30 or 40 songs. Yeah, about 30 songs yeah. for the dear, dear record. Yeah. And it was a long time. It was a year or two, right? You know, yeah, yeah, without knowing what was going to happen. Yeah. Meanwhile, we were getting gigs in Canada mostly. Um, and there was that greatest hits album dropped in the middle there. Yes. War, War, Warner Canada did that. Yeah. yeah. Which, yeah. which did really well. Sold, yeah. sold bucket loads. Yeah. Well, I, I think that greatest hits record actually sort of reset the band with the Canadian audience because it gave much music, something more to talk about more to play. Yeah. And I mean, a greatest hits record is, is, is mailbox cash, right? It's one of those, those things that you didn't have to put anything into. Yeah. Yet pays off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that you're, you're right. It did sort of consolidate the reputation of the band a little bit. And then um, Sony, you know, started to uh, grow as a company. We called it Celine Bucks, you know, and Paul Berger was brought in to, to run the company and he was eager to find stuff. And uh, somebody mentioned us to him and Richard Zuckerman, who was his A&R guy. And then, Bing, bada bing, bada boom, all of a sudden we're making a record uh, for those guys. By this time, there was no American record contract. But then fate intervened in a very weird way. An American band had blown up with their first album, and they decided to cover an old 5440 song. So this would be a good time to revisit I Go Blind. Okay. Because um, that has to be... It, it's, it's almost like the... Bare Naked Ladies record, recording the uh, theme for Big Bang Theory. No, I wish it was. It though. wasn't? <laughs> so explain how this comes along. I mean, you know, Hooting the Blowfish was a band that nobody knew anything about. And they pick one of your songs. They, uh, yeah, as Brad and I like to tell it, I guess, uh, we would play this club in Washington, D.C. called the 930 Club back on the Green Record and Show Me. And they came up from University of South Carolina and they were fans and they played almost every song off the green record in their cover band and every REM song that we were their, their two favorite bands were REM and 5440 oddly. And then we're actually out on the road starving in like 96, 97 or whatever it was. And I get a phone call from my management, Jason Grant. And he's like, uh, I go blind is a B side on, on Hootie and the Blowfish cassette i'm like who's hooting the blowfish and it's like they're taking off right now so i go to a record store to actually buy the cassette single to see that oh my god there it is that's so cool i'm thinking nothing of it right and then 
it takes off not long after. Well, it ends up with a friend soundtrack, right? Yeah. So once again, as as uh, as we understand it, the can so the A and R guy uh, who put together the friend soundtrack moved from Atlantic to wherever or one of the labels. And it was in charge of putting together the Friends soundtrack, but he's also the guy that had signed Hootie, you know, to their their label. So he asked them for a song. They're in between records, so they had recorded "I Go Blind." It didn't make their first record; it was cut. But they said, "You can have this song, but just promise us you won't release it as a single for the Friends soundtrack." And they went, "Okay, no problem." So uh, I think "Bare Naked Ladies" was one of the singles that came out on the Friends sound, like delivered. Can't remember who else, but radio out of Boulder or Denver somewhere just picked just because the hoodie was like all the rage, right? It was sort of the anti Nirvana, and uh, people started requesting it. They started to play it, and then it just sort of built out naturally, just like the old school when a DJ would play a song and fans would like it and then request it, and the DJ in the next city would pick up on that, and it would just instead of pre planned like it is today. It was it was a really neat, organic thing. So uh, that must have been really fun to watch. They they tried to they tried to stop it. I mean, they their new record had just been released, and they basically told radio, "Look, shut that song down. Here's our new single." They released that single, and uh, it pretty well died. And radio just went, "Nope." Okay, we'll go back to I Go Blind. Well, here's the thing that a lot of people don't realize is that if you are an American artist on American radio and you're playing a cover, you don't reap any radio airplay royalties from that because it only goes to the composers. So the no publishers. And the publishers. So they had nothing and would only benefit from the mechanical royalties, which would be the sale of the Friends record or that cassette single. Yeah. Yeah, and when Matt's talking about the record company here, he's not talking about the band. The band were very, very happy for us. They say we did some tour, a tour with them. They wanted us to play with them, and we we, we did. And I remember them. Uh, Sony, the drummer, what was his name Sonny? Sony was um, came in with the Billboard. It was number three on Hot AC or whatever the heck it was. And he goes, you guys are going to get some money. You know, this is great. Da, 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 da. Make sure you get every penny. You know, so they were very happy for us that that that, that had happened. So it's got nothing to do with, with them. They were actually quite thrilled. And that must have been some pretty good mailbox money for a number of years. I remember my wife calling me because she used to get the checks in the mail. They made a mistake. They made a mistake. We got to give it back. We got to get this is just like because there's so many zeros on that first check. She was in shock. Like, what do we do? What do we do? We got to go to the bank and tell them it's not right. You know, and it was right. Now, the original. Back with more 5440 in their own words in just a sec. This is part two of 5440 in their own words. Neil, Brad, Matt, and David all took part in this chat in the basement of the Horseshoe Tavern in Toronto. Let's continue picking up things with the Since When album in 1998. So since when, are, are we still recording in the U.S. or have we moved back to Canada? 
No, since when we had it's just it's uh we had Garth Richardson uh produce it. You know, he sort of we had a lot of common friends and we would hang out and after shows and and you know, drink crown royals with them and stuff like that. And he always wanted to produce us. And we we were into this phase where we wanted to do a total about face. Like I remember our manager Alan going, you know, this could be career suicide because you go from trusted by millions to since when, or it could be a license that get that you can do anything you want. And we we chose the latter, whether the public did or not. <laughs> and uh, and and we had Brad and I had a big sit down with Garth and said, look, we don't want to make one of your like you know testosterone, big muscle tattoo, thick neck platinum selling beef records we want to do yeah we we don't want to be rage against the machine yeah. no well we yeah we'd love to be rage against the machine but <laughs> that's already <laughs> come and gone but you know garth's got i don't know how many platinum records you know he'll show you and uh, i've never heard any of these bands to be quite honest but somehow they all sold a million records in the states because they go Rawr! um so uh, we told him we wanted to, we wanted to do a 16 track two inch um, intimate record. That's what really what we wanted to do, and we wanted to bring in strings and and do all these things. You know, just just where our, our artistic fancy went. And uh, that's a very very good sounding record. Garth is an excellent producer, and uh, he went with it. And you know, we had the song since when, which I think was our. Oh, I don't know. I was told our only AM single that that tracked. It a might bit. be. It yeah. might be. I can't that think of made too many AM others. radio at the time. Yeah, TV commercial too. Didn't and it? we yeah. So that song because it was a Telus and a Hyundai commercial and some other thing. And we recouped all of our Sony publishing. Uh, publishing. Yeah. Uh, you know, and when you get a publishing deal, you know, like a record deal, but a publishing deal is a little different because you you sell. The rights to half of your songs but we're you know being typical musicians sitting in a dressing room like this even today wait a minute you're going to give me money for my songs <laughs> yeah sure i'll take it of course then when it recoups wait a minute i'm giving you half of all my money now <laughs> so it's double-edged sword there this is an odd time too so we're what about 98 right and yeah. the idea of a band licensing a song to a TV commercial was still pretty risky. Yes. So, so if we back up a, a little bit, uh, we were totally against that. So we had a few, you know, offers. We had an offer for one of the cigarette companies to, you know, free bus for the tour. And we turned that down, you know, the Neil Young don't sing for Miller, don't sing for Bud kind of vibe. You know, uh, we had in our contracts still do actually, complete control over the, vis the the visibility of the stage we paid a big festival where we opened for pearl jam where was that gimli or something like that out in in manitoba and they had a big labats balloon and we refused to go on until they deflated the balloon right and there was this big standoff going on this is about 97 nine just before since when came out trusted by millions tour anyway and uh, and I remember uh, what's his face, the little guy, the singer in uh, Eddie Vedder. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> the little guy. <laughs> well, I, he's got a big voice, excellent voice. But when you stand next to him, I go, you know, the first thing you say is like Danny DeVito. God, you're short. <laughs> um, 
so uh anyhow he was like what's the problem and so he hustles off with the promoters and the other members of the band and explained to us, well, these guys have this thing in their contract and, you know, and he said, take it down. So thanks to him, they took it down. Now, what happened is we started to play a lot of, and we still relied a lot on university shows and Frost Weeks and stuff like that. And we would make sure that the, you know, you didn't see, uh, the, the beer companies or whatever. But then what happened is the, the line, the front line moved, right? All of a sudden you, and I'm going to, yeah, it's because you can't see what we're talking, but you're standing there thinking you're holding the line. Next thing you know, the battle is behind you somewhere because the Molson and the cigarette companies went directly to the venues, went directly to the promoters, or if you wanted to play at all, you had to see Molson or Bud or Labatt's or, you know, players light or whatever it was, or Coke, you didn't have a choice anymore. It was over that battle. You lost the battle without even knowing it. Right. It's like being one of those, you know, Japanese guys in a cave 20 years later, like the war's over, you know? <laughs> so all of a sudden it wasn't a stand we could take because there was no, there was no way to do it at yeah, all. Once you play the Coca-Cola stage, you know, and yeah, like, you know, so what do you, you well, know? that would be right. Yeah. Everybody was starting to, uh, sell naming rights. Yeah. So you, you were at the Molson you, Amphitheater. You didn't, uh, you didn't get a choice. Yeah. And they weren't paying. And then what was worse, we were getting paid <laughs> because before they would pay you to put the Coca-Cola sign up or, you know, take this with you and put this banner up. And we refused. Other bands would do it. And that's, that was their choice. I don't care. But we just didn't want, that just felt like a bitter, bitter pill. So what tipped you in the direction of licensing since when? Uh, well, once we signed a deal with Sony, we, they gave us basically money for down payments for our houses for publishing. Then they would come and say, we've got this license for, you know, and since when was sort of an AM hit and more people will get to hear it and like it. And at that time, songs, pop songs on commercials were, were driving. It's kind of like what TikTok is doing now. People re rediscovering hit songs and stuff like that. And you just sort of had to accept once again that's what that's the new reality right if your song's in a movie or a commercial it's gonna do do you way better than you out in the club the title track of since when and the band's highest charting single Moving on, we get to 2000 and we're at the casual viewing record and there's the tipping point. You know, you up at that point had been participating in a traditional uh, recorded industry situation environment where you sold pieces of plastic to the public as everybody had been doing for the last hundred years. 2000 comes. Do you remember thinking that a change is going to come or do you think that oh well this is interesting but it's never going to really affect us i i can tell you a story that that sticks with me even you know that's really easy to tell and explains everything and uh we had done the matt and i had mixed with um lenny, lenny yeah uh lenny DeRose. DeRose. thanks dave this dave's here um the uh, the album out at sony when they still had the big building right and we, uh, and then Rick Camilleri, who was the uh, president at that time, 
uh, came in and heard, and I remember uh, Mike Rowe th- thought the Unbend was going to be the single, and he heard the song Casual Viewing. He goes, that's a single. And we kind of agreed, Matt and I thought that that was happening. Fast forward a little bit, a couple of days later, uh, I had just seen that movie, um, Buena Vista Social Club, that was that I was understood was all recorded on video cameras, okay? not film cameras and and that's how they made it cheap so i went you know because when we were doing videos once again it was celine bucks everywhere pools of money we would do these videos for 200 grand and they'd hire some student out of mexico city who was all the hot and he'd make a stand in a cold cold puddle in a warehouse and we're like well what the hell is this about this is stupid and uh you know that kind of thing so uh i went in and said you know, the song Casual Viewing is t- taken from a line um, uh, from Brad and I are huge Genesis fans from Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, you know, Marshall McLuhan, Casual Viewing. So the, the theme of the song is how communication is changing the world. Kind of what you're alluding to, right? The things are changing. We're connecting more. Internet's happening, all this sort of stuff. And so I've seen one of the social club and I don't want to have the latest, greatest 25 year old director that everybody's raving about in Toronto. That's going to spend money for something stupid. I said, and I go into his office and before I do my pitch, which was to basically let's take some, a skeleton crew, some high end Sony digital cameras and go around the world to see, to show how the world's connected. So we went to Casablanca, Bangkok, Essaouira, in Morocco, and, and we did that video. But Rick also said, he said, I remember he's throwing a Nerf basketball, you know, before I, I do the request. And he grants the request, you know, to basically let us go around the world in three weeks, business class, <laughs> filming a video. <laughs> and he goes, it's over, Neil. It's all over. It's, it's, and I'm like, what are you talking about? We're giving away masters. CDs is giving away masters. And then Napster and all that started to happen. He goes, I'm looking for my exit plan. You know, he's throwing this Nerf ball. What do you want? I said, well, here's my idea. And he goes, yeah, great idea. Do it. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I'm going, walk out of there. I think that was good because we do get to go around the world to make a video, but he did say it's all over. So I'm not sure what that means. (laughs) Comforting words from the record company president. (laughs) Yeah. But it's true, your CD was you basically, I mean, the quality at that time wasn't as good as it is today, but you're giving away masters where, you know, you could, through the internet, send copies, right? Come on, come on, get up. I want to take you away from all of this and what has got you lost and feeling down. You just get it Let's take a bit of a break before we pick things up with 5440 in the digital age. After a couple of decades working in the traditional recorded music business, 5440, along with thousands of other bands, had to adapt to the new realities of the digital world. Here's what they did. So now we enter a period of time where, well, how would you describe the the 2000s for you? Foggy? (laughs) Well, I I remember having another existential uh, conversation with This is number three in case anybody's counting. Yeah. So, and this is because all the stuff's happening where we're seeing all of our friends being escorted out of record companies with, you know, uh, boxes of files and their stapler and whatever else. And you can see the whole music business changing. 
and you didn't understand what's coming next. And we were over here at Nathan Phillips Square, and we sat down just in front of City Hall here in Toronto. And it's like, because that was another point where we could say, yeah, well, we could just pack it in now and uh, find something else to do. Or how are we going to sort of move move forward? And uh, what we determined between the two of us is we were actually in a pretty good place because we had, you know, this body of work, which came up through the old system. And so we could actually still go and do things on that. And then we'll sort of figure out how this whole digital world works and how it applies to us in the future as we go. So we had this sort of transition period where um, we were figuring things out. What sort of ownership did you have over your music? So we had, we had, uh, uh, well, we had all of our publishing from before Sony. So we owned all that. Um, we had masters before, maybe we had given away our masters to, to, I can't remember, but anyway, uh, and then we had given away, uh, everyone else had uh, the masters that count and the publishing, all the Sony publishing was, was owned by all the songs we, we recorded with Sony, um, they published. I don't. That's they own. They, they own, own the masters, yeah, yeah. and they own. Yeah, they own publishing. Yeah. We got paid handsomely. In two thousand three, fifty four forty was back to being an indie band after twenty years. The first record under those new conditions was called Goodbye Flatland, and from that album is Take Me Out. Take me out of this life. Take me. Take Me Out from the 2003 5440 album Goodbye Flatland. And since that record, everything the band has released has been on an indie label. That was followed by Yes to Everything in 2005, which came out on True North Records. True North also released Northern Soul in 2008. So after Northern Soul, things start to, uh, the output starts to go down. So it's not an album every two years anymore. There's there's uh, being lost in the city and there's the big, gap to to keep on walking was there what was the thinking behind this the, there the, was something in between there yeah there was the there was the live unplugged record there was northern soul too yeah, yeah Nor- northern, northern soul, soul. oh we yeah. did uh, oh, and then lost in the city yeah 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 and then before keep on walking there was also uh an unplugged record la difference yeah 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 so uh uh what's this one with easy to love Easy to Love is on uh, is on uh, Yes to Everything. Yes to Everything, yeah. So that was this, the last sort of FM radio top 10 we had in Canada. That was a Dave riff, by the way. And then, yeah, so we noticed things were changing. You know, you, you get told like, yeah, much music isn't going to play you. They're, they're throwing you over to much light or whatever the hell it was called. Don't worry, Blue Rodeo's there too. You know, that kind of thing. It's like, <laughs> what, what? You know? We're not cool anymore, you know, <laughs> all these other things, right? Like all our generation of bands are being moved over. And it's like, oh, that's interesting. In 2023, there will be two new releases, one live album recorded at the El Combo in Toronto and another written during COVID called West Coast Band. We'll get to something from that in just a second. But first. All right. COVID. What do you do during those awful years? Well, interestingly enough, Brad came up with the idea of, uh, you know, doing a Zoom call. So we got on, and this is this became the impetus, which is for the record that's going to come out. 
next because we started telling stories and you know fun and funny stuff about our history and just telling you know first it's grumpy old men right walter Matthau and jack lemon like how's your hip you know how's your knees all that sort of stuff i hanging in there man because we don't we don't live all in the same place right we, three of us live on islands and and, and dave's in vancouver so uh we just started to tell stories and you know we all have monikers like matt the drummer's table for one because that's the way he likes to operate like gets in the van immediately puts on his headphones and there's a story behind table for one where we were doing a gig where was it thunder bay or something thunder like that. bay or north, north bay. bay yeah and uh, we did sound check and we had to rush over back to the motel, quickly shower, eat and get back to the gig. And, and, and Matt decides he's not going to want to shower. He's just going to go to the, the Canadian Chinese buffet. That's right beside the motel in North Bay. You know, the one. And, uh, <laughs> and there's a lineup. And so we get out of the shower. We're all dressed, gig ready. And, and Matt's at the front of the line. And we, we go right to the buffet, fill our plates, say, Matt, get a table for four. And he's so pissed off because he had to wait. And they and and she goes, how many? He goes, table for one. <laughs> so we had to go back to the line. Well, they there was like probably twenty people in line, and they just walked right in front of everyone. I was horrified. I was like, oh my god, they're just they're just ignored the lineup, the queue, yeah. you know. So I was like, I I think it was Neil or Brad kind of waved at me, get a table for four, and I went, I just shook my head and went, nope. <laughs> And we have a, uh, a tradition since Dave joined the band where we have this drink that Dave makes for us called Vodka Surprise. So it's- That doesn't sound good. Yeah, it's not. Well, it is actually. Every day is the best one ever. Oh, I'm feeling the surprise this morning. Yeah. Um, so we have a song named after that and Dave making us the drink. And then when Dave first joined the band, we, did, we were on the road and uh, he didn't quite understand Brad's vibe and personality. And he turned to me and go, where did you find that guy? And so there's a song about Brad. It's called Hey Brad, but it's, you know, where you, where did you find that guy? And uh, we have a song called Food Loser, which everybody can relate to. This is when you're out dining with a group of people and somebody's order gets wrong or it doesn't come or it's cold. Um, we have another song called Same Guy, Different Body which is uh, uh, that drunk person that somehow worms their way into the dressing room and is all brave and you can't get rid of them. And then they get all dark and want to fight you because they, they're not that drunk that they know you don't like them. Um, that happens a lot. Uh, we have another song called Options, which is a story of uh, when we were playing in Regina at the same time as Blue Rodeo. And... Uh, Keeler came over to check out our set and was in the dressing room. And I, and I said to him, uh, this is like 15, 20 years ago. He's like, Hey Neil, how's it going? And I go, oh, you know, pretty good. And I said, you know, you know, Greg, I, I don't think I could do anything else. Like if, if I had to stop this being a musician thing, I don't think I could do anything else. And he goes, nice to know your options are behind you. <laughs> oh, oh, but it's, it's true. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. You don't have to worry. So, we have that song about that story. So there's all the songs on the new record are stories of the band and things that have happened in the band. So it's it's quite fun. Man, oh man, we've seen it before. A really drunk guy who cannot 
up score Let me introduce you to Same goddamn body After being together for so long, there must be a road story. The crazy thing that you cannot believe happened to you while you were touring. Uh, lot, there's lots of them. Uh, there was a time where we we were at a uh, Tower Records convention in Sacramento. Our bus pulled up there and and we're hanging out there and it's, uh, you know, free drinks, obviously. And we're drinking this great, you know, California Chardonnay and everyone's feeling good. And then we get back on the bus after the end of this thing and we're rolling down the street and there's a little jump seat in the front. And so our lighting guy uh, sits down the jump seat and he kind of misses the jump seat and the bus is going pretty good rate here. He hits the door handle on the way out and then rolls out the bus. And we're literally, you know, a hundred meters before we're able to stop. (laughs) So that was, uh, it wasn't funny at the moment, but when he rolled around and got up and said, I'm okay. It was pretty funny. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, uh, highlights of the band was, I mean, without getting too long, just quickly, maybe another time we can get into it would, would be our trip to Moscow. We, we were there for a week in an exchange thing while um, Gorbachev was still the head of, uh, it was, we saw the last Mayday parade, the last communist Mayday parade. We did a show there with a band called the Scramblers, you know, who ended up, getting in jail and stuff like that. Um, once they said the word Gretzky, they got let out of jail. Um, hanging out with Ronnie Wood for a night was legendary, uh, even at his age. <laughs> Meeting Dolly Parton and Emmylou Harris and yeah. Linda Ronstadt. Yeah. That was thrilling. And then, yeah, just like I said, same guy, different body. We did a show in St. Catharines where it was, it was a woman who, who worked her way into the dressing room and, you know, started to be really annoying and, you know, sit on my lap and I like you and all that. And then I sort of indicated to the bouncer, like, can you get rid of her please? And so he tried and she went off and hauled and broke his nose and uh, she was tough. So it took three bouncers to get her out. (laughs) That was memorable for me anyways. Like, holy shit. One more comment from 5440. Well, there does come a time, you know, when, Somebody makes a choice for you. Are you new alternative modern rock or are you classic rock? Yeah. Are you adult hits? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the the greatest experiences was just before COVID in the summer where we played uh, two different festivals, uh, one on a, I think a Saturday or Sunday or Friday and a, sa- a Saturday. So when we were, we were a, ba- a new band and a classic rock, we played with Boston and REO Speedwagon. So we were, we finally graduated to classic rock. Right. And then the next day we were sort of in the middle slot of with uh, winter sleep and all these, I don't even know the names of these bands, the super cool bands. And I was like, that is great. We're in both camps. This is the best day ever. Your yeah. best weekend. Friday. Ever. We were the youngest band on the bill and Saturday we, we were the old. Thanks again to Neil, Brad, Matt, and Dave from 5440 for carving out some time to tell their story. And thanks to Alan Moy from their management team for helping arrange things. There's a lot more of that interview that we didn't have time for in these two radio shows, but the good news is that the podcast versions include pretty much the entire conversation from the horseshoe. Get them wherever you download podcasts. Plus, you'll find more from the In Their Own Words series, along with hundreds of others ongoing history episodes. Please binge. My website is a journal of musical Get the free daily newsletter. And if you want to reach me directly, use Alan at alancross.ca. 
Technical productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Podcasts.